Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Williams, and today we're going to be talking about the genetics in dairy farming. So on the show today, I am interviewing Brad Hines, who is a faculty advisor from the University of Minnesota, and their dairy unit is really cool in that it has both conventional and organic dairies side by side, so they can compare and contrast and see, you know, how is conventional dairy faring against organic dairy and which one is working best for this environment. So that's super fun, and he also has an extensive background in genetics and dairy, figuring out which breeds produce the most milk how it is versus longevity versus milk production. What are some things you need to look at for in different breeds for your environment or for your country, what you're looking for in terms of like output and stuff like that. And we'll also geek out about our favorite dairy breeds, which that's always a very controversial subject um, in dairy because everybody has their favorite dairy breeds, whether it's, you know, Jersey, Guernsey, Holstein, um, all the different dairy breeds that are out there. And Brad and his team also have a podcast called The Moose Room. And he and everybody on there share what's going on in the dairy industry in Minnesota, as well as around the country, and also some things about beef cattle. So it's a great podcast for anybody that wants some more information on dairy. Maybe you're a dairy farmer, maybe you work in beef and you want to hear some expert opinions. It would be a great one to check out. And he also is going to tell us why actually Holstein numbers in the United States have been going down just a little bit in terms of the number of those cows as well as the number of dairies, but milk production is still staying relatively the same, so we're doing more with less, which is kind of neat. And of course, if you want to see any clips from today's interview, head over to our YouTube channel, which is linked below in the comments. We reached a 1,000 subscribers last week, which is phenomenal, so thank you all so much to our old school subscribers and our new subscribers. Thank you so much for checking that out. And everything we mentioned today will be in the link of this episode. If you want to check out the University of Minnesota or the Moose Room podcast, and of course, all things farm travel related. So 
Without any further ado, please welcome to the podcast, Brad Hines. You're kind of a dairy expert. You work for University of Minnesota. You've got a podcast. Like, where was the inception, or where was the where was the start with you when it came to all things dairy and beef? Well, originally, so I, I grew up uh, with dairy long time ago, uh, and uh, showing in 4-H, uh, showed Jersey cows, uh, went through all you know dairy judging. Uh, all that fun stuff. And then I went to the University of Minnesota, actually, and got my undergraduate degree in animal and plant systems. So I was interested in dairy throughout college. Uh, Then I went on an internship to California. So I moved to California uh, when I was 22 years old. Oh, dang. And uh, worked in the dairy industry out there uh, in international marketing and got to see a lot of farms, visit with lots of people, uh, in the genetics world. And I came back to Minnesota, you know, my, my heart is, my heart is in the Midwest. Um, (laughs) So besides the weather differences there, like what were some, were there any major differences between Minnesota dairy and California dairy? Oh yeah. By far, you know, California dairies were much larger. Oh, okay. Uh, You know, even at the time that I was out there, there were three, four, 5,000 cow dairies, uh, in, in the central Valley of California. Mm. So the dairy industry was much larger. Agriculture was everywhere. Um, but even, you know, California was, had a pretty diverse ag industry. Even there was lots of dairies there, but there were beef and then you have all the fruits and nuts and everything. So, uh, I learned a lot in California. Definitely. <laughs> I can, I can imagine. I bet that was a super fun time. Um, like what kind of, do the, does the environment have like a really significant role on the livestock, for example? Like I'm imagining the milk production isn't nearly as long because it gets so cold in Minnesota versus California, the climate's a whole lot better. So are there like some really key differences there in terms of like how much milk the animals can produce given their climate? You know, there's a little bit about that. You know, it, it certainly depends. There's a lot of management factors that go into that. Cows in Minnesota here can give lots of milk too. Mm. Um, we we have a lot of dairy herds in Minnesota that are producing uh, really high volumes of milk. It really comes down to how well their crops are grown in the summertime. Mm. Obviously, in our our growing season um, in California, they get lots of milk too. Uh, they feed feeds that are a little bit different uh, than we do here in the Midwest. And they, but they have to spend a lot of management and time cooling cows, either soaking them or doing lots of different things to, you know, reduce heat stress on cows and, and have them uh, make lots of milk during the summertime. So it's a, it's a little bit different management. We get, you know, heat and humidity here in, in the Midwest where we have to do some of those strategies too, but probably on a, uh, a lot less, a lot less. <laughs> I can imagine it's a lot easier to cool cows in Minnesota versus California. <laughs> it can be. And, and we have, you know, we have barns here in the Midwest, so we can put them under shade and shelter. Granted, that creates some other issues. But in California, it's there's not a lot of barns. Most of them are uh, outdoors in, uh, you know, open lots or they have, you know, their barns are a little bit different. Here's our, our, all of ours are all closed up tight with fans and yeah. there's a little more open open movement of air in, in those barns. So what, what took you to California? And then also what brought you back to Minnesota? Like what were the main reasons there? You know, I, I think it was 
the, the idea to see other parts of the country, mm. uh, other parts of, of the dairy industry. So I worked uh, for Worldwide Sires in, in California. Uh, it's a genetics uh, marketing company. Okay. Um, and so I was working with uh, a lot of uh, marketing. I get lots of foreign visitors and I would take them to dairies uh, in the Central Valley and you know, show them around, show them cows. Uh, I also worked with, you know, people from around the world and trying to market U.S. genetics mm, okay. throughout, throughout the world. So it was really genetics is what, what took me to California. I was, you know, like, like the genetics world. And it was, I thought, a good opportunity. I had never been to California before, and I'm 22 years old. So I, I left uh, and, and moved to California. And it was, it was fun. I, I love the California dairy industry. I, I love the people out there. Um, but it was, you know, I was far from home and it was hot and, you know, I don't know. I, <laughs> everybody says it's a, you know, everybody jokes about the dry heat, but man, when it's 105 degrees out, it is still hot. It's, I don't care if it's a dry heat or not, it's hot. Um, <laughs> yeah, a miserable heat, that's for sure. Right, exactly. So then what brought you, you're in California for a couple of years doing genetics and meeting a whole bunch of people. What then drove you back to Minnesota and then what did you start doing? Well, I had an, you know, an idea when I was an undergraduate that I wanted to get involved in genetics. I like the the genetic aspect of, of cows. So I kind of had that idea before I left for California to mm, do some, okay. some things in genetics and maybe go to graduate school in, in the genetics world. But after I, I moved to California, it sort of kind of sealed my, my fate, I guess. I, I still like genetics. And then I moved back to Minnesota and uh, started graduate school uh, at the University of Minnesota on uh, master's, at the time a master's in, in animal uh, dairy cattle breeding and uh, started, started from there. That's awesome. So we ha- we've talked about dairy on the show a lot but never really about genetics. So how exactly does developing genetics for dairy really work? Well, it's, you know, th- there's a many different factors that go in, into dairy yeah. uh, genetics. You know, <clears throat> a lot of it is selecting uh, bulls for the next, you know, generation. There's selecting cows of, you know, which, which cows you want to breed the bulls to, to sort of prop, propagate the good genetics uh, mm-hmm. and you know and it it's gotten really wild a lot of people are doing in vitro fertilization and embryo transfer and to sort of prop up a lot of the the good genetics and get more of the good genetics now instead of just you know getting one one calf from one cow you can get 20 plus calves from one cow probably in one year or more you know it, it just you know, some of these cows and can have hundreds of daughters and, and bulls can have thousands of daughters uh, based on genetics and, and how you do a, a lot of the mating. So it, it's, uh, it, it can be pretty wild. You know, that's not everybody, but, uh, you know, probably your traditional herd is, is getting one calf per cow and, and, but still using good genetics to, uh, you know, increase the milk production, fertility, survival of their cows. Yeah. So are those kind of the pillars of what you're looking for genetics wise, like milk production, the health of the animal and their fertility? Like, are those the three things you're really trying to pay attention towards? 
yeah, I think everybody thinks about milk production. Obviously, that's a key. You want, you still want to have high production, but I think we focus on fat and protein. So, mm. fat and protein are are big ones for you know cheese production in in the U.S. here, uh, and then health and longevity. You know, can these cows last a long time? We don't want many health problems with them, so it's really selection for health, longevity, and fertility. At least that's that's kind of what I've focused on a lot in my uh, genetics career is is those factors. Obviously, milk production milk production comes along with it. I gotcha. And like when it comes to different breeds, I know that. So in dairy, you're you work with jerseys, right? Uh, well, I, I grew up showing jerseys. You grew up showing jerseys. I, so, I still have jerseys uh, at, at home. So Okay. I, I know that people in dairy, they will fight one another on which breed is best, like Holsteins, jerseys, Guernseys, all that stuff. Um, I mean, do those different breeds have limitations on what those genetics can um, can kind of accomplish? Or can you really just kind of piece it together and just kind of, I don't know, the, the sky's the limit? Well, I think every... Every breed has their differences. Obviously, some you know are more for high production. Some are have better longevity. Some mm-hmm. have better fertility. So I think it you know it really depends on on the farmer and their management and their barns and their stalls. What what breed works well for them? Uh, I, you know, in my opinion, there is only one breed. But <laughs> <laughs> exactly, <laughs> you know. I, I think if you asked any farmer, they'll, they will tell you there's only one breed, but it, you might get a different answer from, from everybody. <laughs> that's funny. I mean, that, that's a good point though, because those farmers like yourself, like they have experience working with that breed. And so like, you know, what the breeds like, what the genetics are like when people outside of working with that breed are like, eh, no, like this breed does that. So I, I love how defensive are because you guys are the expert, like when it comes to those breeds specifically, I think that's awesome. Right. Right. And even in my, you know, in, I, I work with a lot of different breeds, not just Jersey and, and Holsteins, but I've worked with European breeds mm. uh, in, in my graduate career and stuff. And, but I, I still come back to Jersey and you know my heart has been there for a long time and it's still there even though I do appreciate a lot of other breeds no, no doubt about it there's good things and and not so good things about every breed so if you no pressure at all if you had to give let's say a top three dairy breeds what would they be obviously Jersey number one Jersey's number one <laughs> um there's a, a European breed called Montpellard. uh I have appreciated that uh, breed. It's an Alps breed. Uh, mm. And I actually like uh, Normandy. Normandy is, so those are both French breeds. And I've seen both of those breeds in France and, you know, kind of seen those cows in their, you know, working clothes, I guess you could say. And, and uh, they're, they're wonderful, wonderful dairy breeds uh, for uh, many different reasons. But there's, you know, there, there's good things. There's lots of breeds. And I, I think that's good. You know, we'd, we all don't need one breed of, of cow. That would be uh, not so good. That would be boring. Um, exactly. exactly. It'd, be, it'd be super boring. Like I, I would imagine that, that would be Holstein. I feel like those are like the default dairy cow. And like, do you know how why that might be the default dairy cow? Obviously, maybe because of Chick-fil-A. And that's the dairy cow that <laughs> they always say, like, you know, eat more chicken. But do you know why that's kind of like the default dairy cow? Well, it, it really became the default. It, it is the highest producing breed. Uh, and obviously, you know, when we started increasing milk production here, even in the U.S. and uh, around the world, 
it really was the one that produced the most milk. And that's what they were really striving for, for many years was lots of milk production. And the Holstein will, will definitely do that. They by far will outproduce from a milk volume standpoint, most of the other breeds. Yeah, that, that's what I hear. But I, I feel like, would you say like a lot of the big scale farms have Holsteins or, I mean, does it, does it just kind of vary? I think it kind of varies. A lot of them have Holstein, but Holstein has been sort of declining in, in the United mm. States from a, a breed standpoint. A lot of uh, larger farms are going to Jersey. Some have gone to Jersey. Jersey numbers have increased, but then kind of crossbred numbers are, are starting to increase too. So a lot of these larger farms are using multiple breeds, whether it's Holstein and Jersey and crossing them, or some are using other uh, you know, European breeds or, or other ones to, to breed to. So it's, it's kind of a, uh, a mix uh, of many things, but Holstein numbers have been declining, at least in the U S. Okay. I did not know that. So when it comes to crossbreeding, like getting all the desirable traits from all the different dairy cattle, what goes into that? Like, do you have to register and like write down everything to keep the genetics safe? Like what all goes into that? Because that's super fascinating. Why? You know, it, it really goes down to what your what what the breed might offer. Some mm-hmm. some breeds, if you want fat and protein, are better than others. Some have more longevity. Some people that I've worked with are using are selecting some dairy breeds because they maybe increase um, body condition or meat quality. They're more kind of dual purpose a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's uh, lots of different considerations that go into that and. You know, if you look at selecting, say, bulls to breed in your herd, there's, I don't even know, you know, 50 plus different things that you can choose from on on trying to find what bull is the best for this trait or that one. It's sort of, you know, the sky's the limit as far as what farmers really want in their herd. I bet. And so you're breeding all these, all these dairy cows. Um, how long does it take for you to see like some really noticeable differences? Like how many generations does that take? Well, you know, generations in in dairy is quite slow, (laughs) you know, but before you really see some of those, you're at least four years, Mm. you know, it takes nine months for gestation. And then it takes two years to actually get that calf into milk. So you've got three years by the time she just starts producing milk. And then you want to give, give it some time, uh, to, to see what performance they have. So it's, it's almost four years by the time I decide today, what bull I'm going to use till I actually see, uh, any, you know, payoff or what the decisions that I've made. So it, so sometimes it's hard because you might choose the wrong bull and it then four years later, you're like, well, I probably shouldn't have done that. Uh, so, you know, it, that, that's the bad thing. Whereas, you know, we talk about chickens, you know, it's eight weeks. Oh uh, yeah. A lot you, quicker. You know, it's yeah. just so quick. Uh, but yeah, beef and dairy it, with, it just takes a long time, a long time. Yeah. It seems like you better do your research because you're kind of in for it for the long haul. I mean, that, that four years there, that that's a lot of money too to invest in just trying to research and try to do all that to, for, um, to hopefully develop some better characteristics that may or may not come to fruition. Yeah. Right. And you know, it, and it, plus it costs a lot of money to, you know, to get that animal, you know, 
right now your $2,000 plus to raise a young heifer calf till they get into milk. And it, it might take a year for her to pay off that $2,000. So you want that animal to last three, four, five years of age. So she starts to make money. So yeah, it's a long-term investment in the genetics that you decide today. It's five years from now till you actually might see some benefit uh, to that decision. Yeah. It seems like it's kind of a waiting game, which is not ideal, but um, all right. So you went back to university of Minnesota, you started your master's. What were some key things that you learned or discovered when you were going through that program? You know, well, so I, I was interested in the genetics and actually with my master's and PhD, I worked with dairy herds in California. So hmm. I, I went I back full to circle. California. That's right. <laughs> so I went back to California a lot. Um, and it really started, there were some dairies in, in the Northern Central Valley, north of Modesto that were using some European dairy breeds in, uh, in their crossbreeding program. So it was like, you know, I had some of these breeds I'd never heard of before, especially, mm-hmm. you know, Montpellier, which is a, a French breed. It's like, well, what is this? And, and, um, so we, uh, you know, so it, it, it made me intrigued that there were other breeds out there besides Holstein and Jersey and the Guernsey and the main, uh, you know, breeds here in the U S that there were uh, options out there. So it got me intrigued and really, you know, got me excited to see what happens when, when you, uh, import those genetics into the U S and, and start using them in our, in our herds and, you know, what, what can they do? And, you know, it was all about the farmers, the farmers had made these decisions already. So we were just going into these herds, trying to, um, gather the information to see what would happen. Hmm. You know, these farmers didn't even know what would happen when they started (laughs) using some of these breeds. And I, you know, they had heard about some of these breeds. Uh, you know, they originally had started with Jersey and Brown Swiss in their, in their crossing. And then they heard about these European breeds and started using them. And so it was quite fascinating, uh, to go out there and, and see, uh, these animals for the first time and, you know, what they looked like and, and what they were doing. So, uh, that's that's exciting, and it, it got me really excited to, to continue working with these farmers. Uh, and it was a chance to be in California too. Yeah, just to go back and enjoy that weather, and just kind of exactly. see how you know California's still doing stuff. Exactly. exactly. So, were those farmers? Did they pick those like the European cows because they saw some other farmers doing it, or they researched it and they found out some interesting stats with the genetics? Like, what was the whole idea that they had behind that? You know, they they researched uh, different breeds. Um, from around the world and mm. actually tried to figure out, you know, well, they, they were looking for longevity of cows, cows that had less health problems, basically, you know, they were willing to sacrifice some milk production, you know, five, 10% milk production to gain in health and longevity of their cows, mm. you know, their Holstein cows just weren't lasting. And so they researched, lots of different breeds, you know, and even looked at the breeds here in the U S that we use. And they sort of decided upon um, about four, four, four breeds. Uh, You know, there was Norwegian red, Swedish red at the time, Montpellier and Normandy is what they started using in their herds. 
And a lot of those breeds had selected for reduced health problems. Mm. And that's what they were really seeing. So that that's why they went with these breeds uh, over time. So it's quite fascinating how these, these farmers actually researched uh, different breeds uh, to come up with that. I, you know, before that, most people in the U.S. had not heard of some of these breeds at all. Oh, I bet not. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to learn more about them. And that's an interesting point that you brought up, that some of those farmers were willing to sacrifice some of the milk production for longevity. And I guess it makes sense, like if they're producing 5 or 10% less, but they're living a lot longer, then obviously that's going to balance out a little bit, right? Right, of course. If they can live a lot longer, you know, you, you can get more production out of a three, four-year-old cow than you do out of a, a, a young cow. So if you can get these cows to last longer and get them to a mature state where they produce a lot of milk, it, you know, they'll make a lot more money uh, on those cows. And that was the problem trying to, you know, longevity was not very long in, in, you know, some of these herds and which is, you know, a lot of other herds were experiencing these issues too. So uh, these were uh, farms that sort of just went out on their own and, and tried this, uh, you know, to see what would happen. They didn't know what was going to happen either. And they were, you know, like we had talked about trying to predict what's going to happen four or five years down the road was, you know, maybe they made the right decision. Maybe not. You never know. Never. You never know if you don't try that. This reminds me of one of my favorite Mythbusters quotes. Um, it was Adam Savage, and he said, "The difference between science and screwing around is writing it down." Exactly. Uh, that's what. That's what this is making me think of. Like, right. As long as we document it, this is science. We're doing this for science. Well, and I think that's what they were trying to do. That's why they had asked us to get involved. Mm. Uh, was trying to document what they were, you know, maybe going to see in their herds or or not. So we, you know, started working with these herds and tried to document everything that was going on. Uh, to see what would happen. Was there was there anything like super surprising that happened that you guys were not expecting at all or what happened there? Well, you know, I think a lot of these farms they were willing to they were expecting maybe 10% less production or or that and you know, we maybe saw 5% less so they mm. maybe didn't lose as much production as what um uh, we thought there would be. However, they saw lots of gains in just calf livability, less health problems. You know, they didn't have to worry about, oh, there's a cow cabin at two o'clock in the morning. I better go make sure that it's, you know, it, it's okay. And it yeah. doesn't have any difficulty. And so there was probably less stress involved uh, on these farms to, you know, they're just not running around all over the place, putting out fires on their dairy where some of these things they can just let happen. And um, that, that was probably a big advantage. Uh, that they saw, uh, I bet just just less management, less less labor, less input for management. I mean, that seems like the ideal livestock. That's very hands off. That you don't have to be by their side whenever they're calving. Um, that whole process, like I guess that's something else you can look for in the genetics, like good motherly instincts. That's awesome. Right, right, yeah. So that and and that was one of the benefits that they noticed right away was just less calving problems and and less issue there that they, you know, just didn't have to worry. They could come out in the morning and the calves were there and alive and <laughs> up and going. Um, so yeah, it was exciting to see. That. Yeah. It's interesting following stories on like Instagram and Facebook where, you know, they're like horror stories 
of dairy farmers, or even just like like beef ranchers, for example, having to go out at two or three a.m. and um, you know they're having to save livestock because the moms are struggling. It's bad weather or something. So those are always wild to see. So it's good that you're able to you know pay attention to the genetics a little bit to get some good like maternal instincts. Right. Yeah. And I, n- nobody likes to go out in the middle of the night and deal with, uh, you know, problem calvers or problem cows. It's, you know, it, it's de- demoralizing for, for us mm-hmm. uh, as farmers. And, you know, then it can be spelled bad news for cows or calves or you, you name it. So it's, yeah. It's a lot easier to not have to deal with those problems. A hundred percent. I cannot fathom having to deal with that. So it, um, from what I've read up, you guys also have at Minnesota, you guys have some really good um, educational opportunities in terms of like conventional dairy and organic dairy. So what makes those two separate? And then what are you guys trying to do to kind of learn more about both of those techniques of making milk? So in our, our dairy here, where I'm at in Morris, we have, it's about 300 cows, about 120 cows are organic and about 180 cows are kind of conventional. It's, they're, they're not in a freestyle barn. They're not in a barn. So they, they do graze some. So it's kind of more of a conventional mm. sort of grazing type dairy a little bit. Okay. But they can be confined. Uh, you know, I, they're, they're kind of dry lotted during the summer. So it's kind of like California dairying uh, in, in Minnesota for the summertime. Um, but, you know, we're trying to figure out lots of different things. Can can we do well in, in a grazing environment, in an organic environment? And how do some of these the, these cows in each of the herds compare? You know, so we have lots of different genetics here in both the organic and the conventional herd. So we can do some comparisons on longevity of cows, you know, health problems of cows. We can look at, you know, mastitis, um, mm. you know, feed efficiency, uh, of, of cows and how well they, you know, convert grass or pasture. Uh, we're going to be exploring, you know, sort of methane emissions of those cows here in the future, oh, okay. c- comparing the conventional herd and then a more organic grass-based dairy herd. Um, we've done some comparisons in the past, looking at milk quality, you know, fatty acid profiles in, in the milk. Uh, so there's lots of different things. We're calf raising, you name it, we can certainly do it. And we've probably done a lot of that, um, in, in those uh, animals. So it's, it's fun. It's fun trying to explore, you know, a, a, a different production system, although, you know, organic is not, not large in the grand scheme of the dairy industry, 5% mm-hmm. or more in, in mm-hmm. Minnesota. So, but it's still, it, it's a viable option for, for, for dairy farms, you know, kind of, we talked about not everybody has to hold, have Holstein. So not everybody has to be a, a, a conventional dairy either. They can have, you know, a, a grazing dairy herd and, and still be profitable. Yeah. It seems like at least I like learning about organic versus conventional, whether it's like dairy or fruit or whatever, because there's so, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of miscommunication between the consumer and the farmer. Like a lot of farmers realize that, you know, you could do organic dairy or you can do conventional dairy. It's about what works best for you on your farm and your animals. And so, I mean, like you said, it's not like every, every dairy has to be organic or has to be conventional, like just figure out what works best for your animals. And so, I mean, do you think that, you know, if you, if you are a, if you're a conventional dairy, but you're, maybe you're not being very profitable, 
do you think maybe you could explore options like maybe doing pasture or maybe doing organic just to see how your cows are to maybe, you know, be a little bit more profitable and a little bit better for the animals? Yeah, there's certainly a lot of options like that uh, where, where you can try that. You know, I've talked with some farms and some farmers before. We, I, You know, I'd mentioned before, it takes a lot of money to get a mm-hmm. heifer to two years of age. They're very expensive. So I've worked with some farmers trying to figure out, can we raise heifers cheaper? Mm-hmm. And we might be able to do that by grazing them instead of feeding them all the TMR and, and stored feeds over the summertime. If, we, if they have enough land. Why not graze some of those animals on, on cheap feed? You know, it, you know, feed cost uh, in the summertime on a, on a grazing heifer is, is less than a dollar per day. And if you're feeding them, you know, stored feeds, it might be two to three dollars per day trying to feed them. So it can be very expensive and, you know, and, and you get this, you can get adequate growth. You can get the same growth. We get, um, our animals will calve at the same, uh, you know, body weight that mm-hmm. conventional heifers do. Uh, and they've been grazing all summer long on nothing but grass, no stored feed. So it's, it's a cheap way. So I think there's lots of options that if farms are having, you know, some issues there, there might be ways to explore that. And I know that's a tough one because they might be worried about what the neighbors think or what, <laughs> yeah. you know, mm-hmm. all of that. But um, I think there's lots of options if, if farms are willing to explore that, most definitely. Yeah, and I'm sure if they go that route, I'm sure they have that one farmer friend that's like, hey, you remember five years ago you said you'd never do that and here you are doing it? I'm exactly. sure that's a common thing that happens a lot. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's always, there's always that that rivalry in the, in the dairy industry. But, you know, and I think everybody... Everybody wants to see everybody survive. So if, if you know, it's all, all about survival. So if a farm has to do and make some drastic changes, I think we should be able to support them and, and make sure that they actually survive. None of us likes to see uh, farms go out of business. Not at all. Oh, yeah, 100%. And I mean, there's been a huge wave the last like five or so years where dairies have been going under, right? Because, I mean, the price has been crazy. There's all these alternative milks. I mean, it's not like dairy farming is easy. Like there are a lot of businesses, a lot of family farms going under. Right. They're exactly, you know, it, last year in, in 2022, I Minnesota lost almost 200 dairy farms, oh, and, wow. you know, about 5% of the herd. So it, uh, it, you see that, you see that in, in Wisconsin too, you know, a long time ago, Minnesota was at 11,000 dairy farms 20 years ago. And now we're a little over 2000. So we, we have lost a lot of dairy herds in, in Minnesota. Obviously, a lot of herds have gotten bigger. We haven't really lost cow numbers, mm. um, but we've certainly lost uh, dairy farms. So it, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. I, I, I want to see the dairy industry survive in Minnesota and, um, yeah, making sure that everybody's uh, th- there's options for everybody is, is a positive. Oh, you there? We broke up for a second. Yep. We're good now. Yep. Sorry, what were you saying about the, the dairy industry in Minnesota? You want to see more of them spring up? Yeah, we want to, you know, we want to keep the, the dairy industry viable in Minnesota. And we want to, you know, make sure that every dairy farmer is able, able to survive and keep going. So I think we, you know, we want to be able to support all of the dairy uh, farms, whether they're 20 cows or whether they're 10,000 cows. You know, it, I think a, a good, diverse dairy industry is is, is a positive thing. Yeah, I mean, Minnesota and Wisconsin are two like very historical 
dairy states. I mean, the top three are it's California, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, right? Uh, uh, no, there's bigger states now. Idaho, okay, uh, Texas, New York. New York has still got a lot of dairy farms. So it's Minnesota is let's see number eight now. Okay, in dairy. So we used to be in the top five, but we we kind of dipped to number eight because we've lost a lot of cows and um, some of these other states have increased they're you know be able to build much larger dairy farms hmm. so you guys at the university of minnesota like how collaborative are you with other dairy um organizations at other colleges around the country like are you guys are, are, you, are you competitive are you sharing information willy-nilly like how, how how are those relationships i think we we do lots of collaboration you know i've collaborated with many different universities uh around Iowa State, uh, University mm-hmm. of New Hampshire, uh, Penn State University, uh, you know, there's many and, and a lot more, you know, Florida, you name it. There's lots of different places where we've worked together. Um, I think, you know, the, the dairy industry is is small. Um, those of us are, that are doing really applied dairy research, it's it's a small group, you know, it's it's by no means large. So we like to work together. And I think that that helps us out uh, working together on projects um, and, you know, putting our minds together because what might help farmers here in, in Minnesota or Wisconsin actually might help farmers in New York and Pennsylvania too. So I think that's what we, we like to do is, is work together. And, you know, a lot of us have similar ideas and, and so how can we make things work together uh, to, to help benefit farmers. I think at least that's what, what I'm about uh, from my applied research is, is being able to help farms and, and help farms stay profitable and, and stay in the dairy industry. So not only from your research, but also from your podcast, which we heard from your co-host, you've got the Moose Room, right? That you guys do and y'all share all information on dairy and beef. Like, was that just an avenue to get more information out there to farmers that, you know, might want to listen to a podcast and learn something about dairy and what they can do differently? Yeah, I think so. You know, we, we, we came up with the idea actually in, in 2019, uh, you know, so it's been a, almost four years ago that we came up with that idea and it was really, <laughs> you know, it, podcasts were just getting popular at the time and it was really trying to get more of our information out. You know, we had worked with a lot of Minnesota farmers here, but how can we get our information out to other parts of the U S mm-hmm. uh, Canada? And now I believe we're in 50 countries around the world. So That's there's awesome. people from, okay. you know, Australia, New Zealand, uh, you know, Europe, lots of different places. Obviously, you know, the core group is, is here in, in the Midwest, mm-hmm. uh, but we do get lots of people from all over the world that listen to our podcast. So it was trying to get that information out to many different people. I think if you talk to dairy farmers around the world, they're interested in what we're doing too, and maybe how it can fit into some of their operations. So uh, it was, it, it was a good thing that we started that and, and it's, it's worked out well um, to, to do some beef and some dairy. Cause they, you know, they're, they're similar and, and have similar type things. So it's, uh, it's been fun actually. That's awesome. Yeah. Beef and dairy are same, but different. Right. Um, have you had like any, really big topics that you've discussed on the show that have been like really monumental, like any, I don't know, key genetic findings or industry developments over the past four years? You know, some of it has been in, in genetics uh, mm. that, that we've talked about. Some has been in, in kind of our, our solar energy and solar grazing, obviously the health 
beef health uh, and dairy health topics are very popular. You know, our we we also try to focus on uh, mental health. Mm. You know, one of our our co-host Emily is kind of works in that farm safety and and farm uh, mental health standpoint, and that's been one of the probably popular subjects that we've we've uh, brought into the mix uh, on our podcast and it's been popular we we actually won an award on no way. Our, one of our uh, mental health podcasts uh, that she had where she uh, interviewed her her dad that was involved in some farm safety act accidents and mm-hmm. and how that worked out so yeah the you know we we're not just focused on you know how to get milk out of a cow or, or how to <laughs> breed a better dairy or beef animal we like to focus on all aspects of of, of farming and i think that's what makes our podcast maybe a little bit different than some of the other ones that maybe just focus on research and telling about what, what we're doing. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a wide variety of things and, and you never know what we, what topic we might discuss from one week to the next. <laughs> That's perfect. You've got your niche, but you're not afraid to go outside of that and cover any more, you know, interesting or important things that anybody doing beef or dairy might need to know, like, especially mental health. That's awesome. I, I'm so happy that over the past like two or three years, there are so many more mental health tools for farmers out there, whether it's, you know, podcasters or Farm Bureau Insurance, like countless people offering more tools to help farmers, which I think is huge. I, I agree. And and it's it's been a good avenue for us to get um, a lot of information out there and, and where farmers can go and and that there are other people experiencing these, these same issues and, um, you know, how to deal with that. You know, there's not a lot of information out there and, and where to go from say a, a farm safety or mental health aspect. So it's, it's been a good thing that we've kind of ventured off in, into those and, and actually May is mental health month. So hmm. um, we, we kind of devote some of our topics uh, in May uh, for, for that aspect. So what are some farm safety things when it comes to dairy and beef? I mean, cause I'm thinking about like, traditional row crops of course you've got crazy machinery dairy and beef you've got livestock and you've also got other machinery what are some other like farm safety things whenever it comes to all that stuff what you know it comes down to livestock too you know livestock are are they're they're not pets you know they can be unpredictable they They can can be ornery (laughs) that's right they can they can turn on you any minute whether you know it's like well, this cow is 10 years old and she's, we've never had a problem. The next minute she's got you on the ground. So it's, <laughs> there's some things, you know, how do you deal with livestock? You know, a lot of it has to do with farm safety. There's, you know, tractor safety, mm. ATVs, you know, some of those aspects that people just never think of uh, when, when you think uh, about farm safety and how to do that. You know, one uh, we did about how, you know, you see a lot of tractors driving down the road. Well, what, what do you do and how do people, you know, the public interact with, with farms on, on just a public road is, is something that we need to be safe about and how farmers can, you know, make sure that they know how to see cars in the road and what they need to do. So there's no problem. So it's just, there's many different things that, that go into it that we might not think of in that moment. And it's uh, being able to recognize and, and see those aspects and, and think about them beforehand. So when you get the tractor and uh, on the road on a busy state highway, what, what happens and what could happen and, and how, you know, how do you make a safe thing uh, about that? Yeah. I mean, that's a huge thing. I've seen a, a bunch of people, at least last year, like post about the like farmers that were doing um, like ad campaigns and they're like, Hey, when you see a tractor, here's how you pass it. Like, 
make sure it's not a double line make sure there's no cars incoming and like if you're a farmer like try to pull over as far as you can but of course like still stay on the road um and of course like i've seen so many memes about um like a sprayer and if you're a car like do not drive under a spray tractor because it might look like fast and furious but do not do it you will not fit (laughs) exactly that's right there's a lot of uh, you know farm machinery is dangerous it's big it can do a lot of damage so yeah even being able to recognize those aspects is is definitely important oh yeah better better safe than sorry um which i don't know i feel like every other month there's like a big farm safety thing where something happens and everybody's like hey remember your safety equipment i mean one thing that always frightens me is um grain bin accidents where you can like sink to the bottom but i mean now there's so much stuff that helps you there are like all these emergency equipments, like straps and everything that can help save people. Like that is a frightening one that happens all too regular. Yeah, it seems like you always hear about that in the fall or or in the wintertime about some kind of grain bin accident or somebody gets stuck in a grain bin. And yeah, mm-hmm. they're, it's frightening and it can happen so fast. You don't even, you know, it, it, it's hard for you even to think about it. It just, boom, it sucks you in. Uh, no problem. And, you know, another one is, is silo gas. You know, there's mm. in, in the Midwest here, there's still lots of silos and uh, in, in the Northeast on some dairies too. You get it in silage piles, you know, silo gas is, is dangerous. You can, it can, you know, it can knock a person out really fast. So even being able to recognize, you know, gases that come from, you know, silage storage is, is pretty important. And, silage piles and how to deal with that they can collapse you know you just you just never know what what might happen and then those things happen so fast that you just don't even have time to react yeah and i feel like one of the good things about social media is people are sharing these accidents more where like i would say they're probably happening at the same frequency but we're becoming more aware of them because people are sharing their stories like hey we almost had a grain bin accident like go get a harness so this doesn't happen and they are just sharing that so you know, encouraging more people to be cautious and to not just, you know, be willy nilly, like have safety procedures because you never know if it's going to happen. I agree. And, you know, you, I think we just know more about those stories now. You know, I was in, in graduate school 20 years ago with a a person where he was uh, exposed to silo gas. And Mm. that was a long time ago, 20, 30 years ago, and, and it's still happening today. So it's, being able to, you know, back then it probably wasn't talked about and it was in maybe the, the local news or, or you heard about it from this farm or that farm. But I think now you're seeing more of those uh, to become for, for people to be more aware of, of what's happening and what, what could happen. You know, farming is, is dangerous and we all need to be aware of, of our, our surroundings. Yeah, I mean, all the machinery, all the equipment, and of course, it's dangerous, but also it's not cheap. And so if you mess it up, if you're in an accident, that's going to be even more money. That's going to be a, a rough time. No fun. Um, before I forget, you mentioned methane and dairy cows. So one thing I always hear about methane and dairy cows is that we're eventually going to put backpacks on cows to capture their methane gas. As an expert, is that going to happen? It will not happen by putting backpacks on cows, <laughs> not at all. Uh, the, the, there are there are contraptions that you can put on cows to be able to do that. Definitely, mm-hmm. uh, we're we're using a, a system. It's a it's called Green Feed. It's out of a, a company in, in South Dakota. That so when a a cow comes in to eat, uh, it captures their breath. So it can mm-hmm. it can uh, capture uh, you know 
carbon dioxide, uh, methane, hydrogen, and oxygen in, in the cow's breath and, and give a, a measure of, of what that cow's doing from a greenhouse gas standpoint. Obviously, we can't, you know, I, I think a misnomer is that most of the methane comes out of the back end of a cow, and that's mm-hmm. not true. Uh, you know, we won't be able to measure what comes out uh, of the back end of a cow, but we'll be able to capture a, a lot of the information that's coming out of, of the mouth of a cow. So that's what we're going to be exploring this summer and, and see where it goes. I don't know where it's going to go, but we'll, we'll find out. That's an exciting thing. You don't know where it's going to go. Like I'm sure that'll lead to a whole bunch of discoveries. Um, so I've, I've seen a bunch of diagrams that explain carbon or um, CO2 and methane. They're very different in how they interact with the, um, with the atmosphere, right? Like methane, it can break down a lot quicker. Is that right? Right, right. It can break down uh, uh, much quicker. Um, and yeah, carbon dioxide is what stays uh, in the atmosphere and, and probably is is the cause of a lot of the you know greenhouse gas and and uh, emissions mm-hmm. uh, type type questions and things that we're seeing based on climate change. So it's it's mostly from a CO two standpoint, but you know methane is is pretty important too. I gotcha. Um, and also, <laughs> this one makes me laugh. I'm sure you've heard about this. Did you hear about the, I, I believe, the Russian dairies that started using VR goggles for their dairy cows? I've heard a little bit about that and being able to see that. I don't know much about it, but it <laughs> it sounds intriguing, I guess, and to see what happens. I I don't know what I don't know what the cows are seeing in there, but yeah, I don't either. I, I read an article and it, it just had this really funny picture of a cow with like some VR goggles on and they said like the cows are seeing fields or something and it increases their happiness, but there really was no gauge in how they were measuring the happiness or something. So it was kind of a very rough estimate, but it was interesting. Have you heard of any research like that being done here in the States? Uh, not, not yet. No, no. <laughs> uh, obviously, yeah, you, you could see that if they're out in the green pasture and, and they see a picture, it might help increase their milk production. M- maybe, maybe not. I, I don't know. I don't know. It sounds, sounds interesting, wild and crazy, I guess. I know it does. I'd, I... I'd try it. I'd try it. Maybe in the wintertime, we could put some on our cows and not have to, <laughs> maybe they can see the pasture in the summer uh, <laughs> and not have to see the snow in the winter. Yeah. See, that that's a good compromise. Like, in um in Russia they just put on VR goggles, but here in the States we just let them go out to the field. That's exactly. right there. <laughs> but maybe for the winter we can get them some VR goggles. Right. I'm sure that would be, you know, some tech some tech billionaire's dream. I mean, you've got a huge clientele, all the dairy cattle in the US, develop some sort of proprietary dairy cattle VR goggles. Exactly. Maybe it could work. I mean, maybe also there's like a vacuum on it or something where you can suck up the burps and you can capture the methane two for one. I don't know. Exactly. Exactly. You, you never know that the sky's the limit. The sky is the limit. <laughs> That's wild. Um, Is there any other like really interesting technology happening in dairy right now that you're aware of? Well, you know, technology is moving so fast in dairy. It's, it's wild. You know, it, it's, there's so many sensors you can put on cows, in cows, mm. uh, to measure, you name it, heart rate, heat stress, drinking, you know, and then we have robotic uh, milking machines now. Oh, yeah. Who, who would have thought 20, you know, five years ago or 30 years ago, we would have, you know, robots milking their cows. I've, you know, I was 21 years old and I went to Canada, uh, you know, this 
not quite you know 25 years ago and they had a robot milking cows and it was very crude and mm. it was kind of fascinating though but it wasn't happening uh, anywhere in in you know the u.s or canada so it's it's interesting to see how it's coming i i think it's only going to get um more and more from a say a robotic milking standpoint with labor and uh, you know no, nobody wants to milk cows twice a day anymore uh, and if you can get a machine to do it um you know, maybe that's a good thing. You can focus uh, in in many other aspects and not have to worry about the physical milking of cows. Yeah, focus elsewhere. And I've seen a bunch of videos of those robot milkers where when the cow needs to get milk, it walks in there and then it like scans the udder and it puts on the suction and it gets the milk. It's wild and it, it's so efficient. Like it can run 24-7, doesn't have to take breaks and it tracks the cows and it tracks their milk delivery and all that stuff, which is wild. Right. And so it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's really, it's, you know, I don't want to say machine farming, but it, you, you can look <laughs> at a, you can look at a computer and see all kinds of information from these cows just when they come into milk. And, you know, if you can, if you can train a cow to milk by itself, I, I'm all for that, you know, and there, and that can actually happen in whatever, you know, there's, I work with some farms that are organic that are milking their cows mm. with robots. So it, it can happen in pasture dairies or conventional dairies. It's kind of, it doesn't matter what kind of dairy operation you have. Robotics work for all of them. That's a good point. I mean, just because you have a robot milker doesn't make you a quote unquote factory farm. Like you could be right. an organic farm. You could be a small mom and pop farm. You're just using technology, which is very cool. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's really what it's about. That's really what it's about. That's awesome. So you guys have got the Moose Room. You're also putting, I mean, obviously at a land grant college, you guys are putting out awesome information like, if you're a dairy farmer, if you're a dairy farmer in Minnesota, what are the best resources that you recommend for them, you know, learning about the industry, learning what's happening right now? What are some good resources for them? Well, obviously, I, I, you know, our University of Minnesota dairy extension team, we do lots of different activities. We, you know, we host summer field days that are actually quite popular where hmm. farm uh, far, other farmers or industry people can come to certain farms. You know, obviously we handpick, you know, it's maybe show this technology or so show this management uh, type uh, farm that's doing something different. And, you know, to see how farmers might be able to use some of that information from, from other farmers. So we kind of facilitate some of those. Um, we have, uh, you know, we focus on a precision technology conference. You know, we're going to have one this summer where we get industry people and farmers together to really look at, you know, precision technology from sensors to robotics, uh, you name it. So I think that's where, where we can help from uh, our extension standpoint is, is looking at technologies and what other farms are doing from a management perspective. And, and we focus on all dairies, you know, I focus with organics, we focus on pasture dairies, we focus with conventional dairies, large conventional dairies. So it it's really kind of a one size fits uh, well, not a one size fits all, but we we do everything with with a lot of dairy farms and and try to get that information out there for all farmers to use. So I think that's a a good benefit that all of us that work in extension uh, kind of do. Yeah, I love the the collaborative nature of extension work. I mean, no matter what college you're at, no matter what county, like it's just so collaborative, there's everybody helping agriculture as a whole. I think that's awesome. I mean, I'm sure you guys have people from Florida, Texas, California, share information with you guys. You share them back and forth. 
And of course, with all the dairy farmers out there, like I love just the, you know, the collaborative nature of it. I'm sure, obviously, as a professor, I'm sure you enjoy that too. Like everybody, you know, collaborating to help dairy continue to improve. Oh, I agree. You know, working together, it only helps us improve the dairy industry in, in the U.S. and in other places. You know, we, we, we get lots of information from, you know, other countries to, to, to help us and, and we share information to them. So I think it's a, a good global dairy industry. That's awesome. And of course, if people want to listen to the Moves Room, you've got the podcast, you're sharing all sorts of awesome information. Um, where all can they go for more on the Moves Room? You know, you can find the Moves Room on wherever you might get your podcasts. We're on, you know, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Transistor, you you name it, we're, we're there. And, and we're, you know, I, I think, give a listen. You, you never know what you might uh, hear one day from us. Uh, it's, it's a wide variety. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go back and look up that mental health episode and see how that is. I mean, that's awesome. You guys won an award for that. That's really cool. Yeah, it 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 was in May of 2022, and and uh, it's it's you know it, it's a long one, but I think it's good for people to listen to that and see how you know an accident happened and how to move on from from that and you know not not get yourself down. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, well, Brad, this has been awesome to virtually meet you, to learn all things about dairy. I liked learning about dairy. Um, I, I love that we geeked out about, you know, the top three um, dairy cattle and all that stuff. And your team, Guernsey. Wait, no, no, Jersey. Jersey, Jersey, Jersey. Jersey. That's right. Guernsey, too. Jersey. <laughs> Guernsey, too. Um, well, thanks so much, man. If I have any dairy questions, I'm going to head your way because you seem like you have been an expert, especially when it comes to all things genetics. That was something really cool to talk about that we haven't really talked about for on the show. So I appreciate it, man. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me on. It's been fun. Hey again, thanks so much for listening. Check out The Moose Room at the link in the description of this episode and check out all things farm travel related at thefarmtraveler.com. And of course, check out our newsletter if you would like to, also linked below um, the description where every Friday we have a five-minute Friday newsletter where you can see more information on what's happening in the world of farming, podcasting, and of course that week's episode in Farm Traveler. We really appreciate it. We'll see you next week. Adios.